Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we are finishing Russia in Revolution by S.A. Smith. We began the conclusion last time and now we will be wrapping up the rest of that conclusion with some brief thoughts at the end. Mostly this conclusion is going over stuff we've already covered in the book anyway, so my wrap-up thoughts will be similarly just summing up my feelings in general. And next time we will be moving on to Post-Scarcity Anarchism by Murray Bookchin. I'm looking forward to that because, as I said back when reading The Conquest of Fred, I would be curious to see how some of these thoughts have developed in the context of modern times, especially because with this book, a lot of the context of the Russian Revolution in particular is so rooted in the material conditions they were living in, both the reasons it happened, the reasons it was sparked and was sustained, and a lot of the reasons they ran into difficulties. So given the material conditions we live in in our modern time, I am very interested in what the post-scarcity viewpoint will be. But let's first finish the book we're on, so let's get started. This book has explained the evolution of the Bolshevik regime with particular regard to the historical circumstances of war and economic backwardness that shaped it. Whereas many historians in recent decades have emphasized the culpability of the Bolsheviks themselves, pointing to the role of their ideas and actions in bringing about Stalinism. One of the most trenchant interpretations of the history of the Soviet Union has been that of Martin Malia, who argued that the Soviet Union was an ideocracy, whose development was driven by the millenarian vision of a total transformation of man and society. He contended that tyranny was the inevitable outcome of the Bolshevik determination to abolish private property, profit, and the market, since it necessarily entailed the suppression of civil society and individual autonomy. Many other historians ascribe similar determinacy to ideology, although they differ in respect of the elements of Marxism-Leninism they see as logically entailing totalitarianism. Some agree with Malia that its seeds lay in the abolition of the market and private property, Others see them as lying in the concept of a dictatorship of the proletariat, or in the belief in class struggle as the motor of history, or in the conviction that Marxism provided scientific knowledge of the laws of history, or in the belief that human nature could be transformed through revolution, or in the Bolshevik rejection of morality as a constraint on action, or in the Leninist model of the vanguard party. Doubtless some, and perhaps all, of these elements in Marxism-Leninism played a part in facilitating Stalin's tyranny. There is no doubt that beliefs mattered to the Bolsheviks. That they believed they were realizing the Marxist vision is indisputable, and it is impossible to understand their vast ambition, their astounding energy, and their ruthless determination without taking seriously the ideology that inspired them. Ideology, moreover, could work negatively, by blinkering their vision. In 1905, for example, the labour movement had talked of human rights, 
Yet this disappeared after the language of class became hegemonic in 1917. The Bolsheviks simply did not believe in abstract rights, and one consequence was that it left Soviet citizens bereft of a language in which they could seek redress against the arbitrary actions of the state. Yet we should also remember that Marxism-Leninism was a bundle of very diverse ideas and values, and the fierce battles that raged within the party during the Civil War testify to the coexistence of different understandings of socialism. Moreover, the emancipatory impulses within Bolshevism are easily overlooked. In 1917, it was its promise to abolish inequality and exploitation, its rejection of the war as imperialist, its belief in the equality of people regardless of class, race, or gender, its promise to dismantle the bureaucratic state and place power in the hands of local Soviets that made it appealing to millions of people across the globe. The foregoing account has highlighted the ways in which the legacy of the First World War, the desperate struggles to win the Civil War, to feed the towns, and to deal with the ravages of famine and disease, or the requirement to deal with the consequences of international pariah status severely constrained the Bolsheviks' scope for action. By looking at the weight of the Tsarist past, moreover, I have suggested that the Bolsheviks found themselves facing many of the same problems and pressures. The need to rapidly industrialize, to modernize agriculture, to build defense capacity, that had faced their Tsarist predecessors. Of course, they interpreted the circumstances they faced in terms that were different from those used by Witt or Stolypin, and consequently devised different policies to overcome them. But objectively, the tasks of modernization that they faced, set by the competitive pressures of the international state system and by the uneven development of capitalism, were the same. Historians writing from a position of sympathy for the Bolsheviks often suggest that their course of action was determined by implacable circumstances, that it was beyond their power to overcome. Certainly, the constraints within which they operated were very real, but at each turning point, the Bolsheviks made choices, and in seeking to understand why the revolution evolved in the woeful direction it did, we have to recognize that alternative courses of action might have been taken. In this respect, ideology mattered crucially, setting the frame within which choices were made. But it did not determine the course of action that would be taken. It could not tell the Bolsheviks what the optimal strategy for industrialization should be in the 1920s or how to deal with more immediate, but just as critical, short-term problems such as whether or not to sign the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Moreover, many factors, other than those connected to ideology or circumstances, shaped the course of the revolution. One thinks of the crucial role played by political leadership in 1917, the personal and intellectual qualities of Lenin that disposed squabbling comrades to accept his authority. One thinks also of the role played by contingency in shaping historical outcomes. The fact that Lenin died at the age of 53, at a point when he recognized the dangerous sides of Stalin's personality, 
a man he had done much to promote, but was in no position to block his former protege's rise to pre-eminence. One thinks, too, of the role of simple accident. Trotsky gave the example of V. N. Lvov, the garrulous procurator of the Holy Synod, who unwittingly tipped off Kerensky to the fact that Kornilov was planning changes to the Prime Minister's cabinet, thereby setting the Prime Minister against the man with whom he had been planning a form of military dictatorship. Footnote 10. Or again, one thinks of the role played by unintended consequences. Against the background of the Kronstadt Rebellion, the 10th Party Congress instituted a temporary ban on factions within the Bolshevik Party. The charge of factionalism would provide Stalin with a big stick with which to beat the opposition. This brings us, finally, to the question of the relationship of Leninism to Stalinism. It is beyond question that there was much in Leninist theory and practice that adumbrated Stalinism. Lenin was the architect of the party's monopoly on power. It was he who subordinated the Soviets and trade unions to the party. He who would not tolerate those who thought differently. He who dismantled many civil and political freedoms. He who crushed the socialist opposition. At the height of the Civil War, Lenin even went so far as to suggest that the will of the proletariat quote, may sometimes be carried out by a dictator. End quote. In other words, Lenin must bear considerable responsibility for the institutions and culture that allowed Stalin to come to power. Crucially, he bequeathed a structure of power that favoured a single leader, and thus made the ideas and capacities of the leader of far more consequence than in a democratic polity. What this logically entails, though it is often overlooked by those who see Stalinism as arising seamlessly out of Leninism, is that if Bukharin or Trotsky had become general secretary, the horrors of Stalinism would not have come to pass, although economic backwardness and international isolation would still have critically constrained their room for manoeuvre. A good example of the extraordinary power of the leader of a Leninist-type party is Deng Xiaoping, who, from the end of the 1970s, broke utterly with Maoism and moved China from a command economy to a market economy and from a totalitarian to an at least partially open society, albeit under strict one-party rule. We may, of course, doubt whether Bukharin's vision of socialism at a snail's pace could have narrowed the economic and military gap between the Soviet Union and the capitalist powers notwithstanding the instability of global capitalism that ensued with the Great Depression. And we may be equally sceptical that Trotsky could have furthered the revolution in the advanced capitalist countries that he saw as necessary for the ultimate victory of socialism in Russia. Nevertheless, we can be confident that although the left shared Stalin's determination to smash the fetters of socio-economic and cultural backwardness, it would not have unleashed anything like the violent collectivization or great terror that soon ensued. In the last analysis, Stalin exploited to the full the role of leader. 
which had developed into a centerpiece of the Leninist model of democratic centralism, playing his cards skillfully and understanding the potential of a totalitarian party state to bring about the root and branch transformation of the economy and society. As a person, moreover, Stalin did not scruple at the human cost. If continuities between Leninism and Stalinism were real, the revolution from above also introduced real discontinuity, wreaking havoc upon Soviet society. In bringing about what he called the Great Break, Stalin believed he was advancing the cause of socialism. Yet whether Lenin would have recognized the regime he brought into being as socialist is very doubtful. Stalin presided over the consolidation of a new ruling elite, the restoration of economic and social hierarchies, the reconfiguration of patriarchal authority, the resurgence of a certain Russian chauvinism, the rejection of artistic experimentation in favor of a stifling conformism, the snuffing out of virtually all the progressive experiments in social welfare and new ways of living of the 1920s. Crucially, although the institutions of rule did not change, personal dictatorship, the unrestrained use of force, the cult of power, paranoia about encirclement and internal wreckers, and spiraling of terror across an entire society, all served to underline the difference between Stalinism and Leninism. To some extent, Stalinism represented the resurgence of elements in Russia's political culture. This is a leitmotif of the work of Richard Pipes, who emphasizes the enduring influence of Tsarism as a patrimonial regime in which the Tsar's absolute and unconstrained authority derived from his ownership of the country's resources, including the lives of his subjects. In addition, Pipes argues that the Russian peasantry lacked a sense of civic responsibility, was politically passive, and supportive of autocracy. It is not difficult to see these things at work in the political culture of Stalinism. Of course, the revolution released a flood of change that destabilized cultural norms and practices. But, as Mosh Lewin pointed out, the contamination effect of tradition is often greater. The quicker customary patterns are broken. So that, notwithstanding cultural revolution, one also sees a kind of return of the repressed. At the same time, and contrapipes, we need to be cautious about interpreting Russia's political culture as a monolithic system. A culture is a contested field in which different norms and practices compete, so that the Russian peasantry could be disposed both to acquiesce in autocracy and to rise up against the social order, depending on context. We should also be cautious about seeing traditional political culture as a causal factor in the rise of Stalinism. Culture is best seen as a context that often shapes political outcomes negatively rather than positively by, for example, furnishing few resources to counter the resurgence of autocratic forms of rule. Yet, those caveats made, the similarity between Tsarism and Stalinism cannot be gainsaid, manifest above all in the primacy of the state over society and the individual. In the absence of civil institutions mediating between people and government, 
in the highly personalized relationship of the people to authority, in the highly centralized system of government, and in the lack of legal restraints on power. In 1859, in the preface to A Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy, Karl Marx wrote, quote, No social order is ever destroyed before all the productive forces for which it is sufficient have been developed, and new superior relations of production never replace older ones before the material conditions for their existence have matured within the framework of the old society. Mankind thus inevitably sets itself only such tasks as it is able to solve, since closer examination will always show that the problem itself arises only when the material conditions for its solution are already present, or at least in the course of formation. End quote. The Bolsheviks believed that the First World War was evidence that capitalism was in terminal crisis, that it had exhausted its potential to develop the productive capacity of humanity any further, and that the conditions for socialism now existed in embryo. While one can admire their determination to break from the futility and carnage of the First World War, their assessment of the significance of the war was way off the mark. Leaders of the Second International, whom Lenin held in contempt because of their capitulation to nationalism in 1914, had regularly warned of not confusing revolution that emerges from war with socialist revolution. The French socialist leader, Jean Jaurès, who was assassinated at the end of July 1914, just as he was about to attend a conference of the Second International to try persuade it not to support war, had warned in the shadow of the Balkan Wars that, quote, if the social revolution emerges from the chaos instead of coming about as the supreme expression of progress, as a higher act of reason, justice, and wisdom, it will be part of this universal mental crisis, an excess of the contagious fury brought about by the suffering and violence of war. End quote. Footnote 11. A similar sentiment had been expressed a decade earlier by Karl Kotsky, leader of the German Social Democrats. Quote, Revolution which arises from war is a sign of the weakness of the revolutionary class, and often the cause of further weakness because of the sacrifice it brings with it, as well as by the moral and intellectual degradation to which war gives rise. End quote. In the event, the Bolsheviks ignored these warnings, and the order they brought into being bore the birthmarks of the contagious fury begotten by the First World War. The Bolsheviks never doubted that a decadent capitalist system would collapse sooner rather than later. Indeed, this view was still held by Soviet leaders into the 1960s. A hundred years on, with the Soviet Union defunct for more than a quarter of a century, that is, more than a third of the length of time that it actually existed, it is clear that the Russian Revolution did not come into existence because of the terminal crisis of capitalism. Like the socialist regimes it helped bring into being after the Second World War, the Soviet Union proved capable of generating extensive growth in industrial production and of building up a defense sector, but much less capable of competing with capitalism once the latter shifted towards more intensive forms of production and towards consumer capitalism. In this respect, 
the record of the Chinese communists in promoting their country to the rank of a leading economic and political world power was far more impressive than that of the regime on which it broadly modelled itself. Indeed, as the 21st century advances, it may come to seem that the Chinese revolution was the great revolution of the 20th century. Deeper in its mobilization of society, more ambitious in its projects, more far-reaching in its achievements, and probably more enduring than its Soviet counterpart. Yet in the end, the Chinese communists achieved historically unprecedented economic growth by emulating capitalism, by putting in place a system of investment-led and export-led growth, and by privatizing state assets and stimulating private enterprise. Through the 20th century, Capitalism displayed immense dynamism and innovation, permitting the raising of the standard of living of millions of people, even as it concentrated immense wealth in a few hands and created new forms of alienation. This is not intended as a pay-in to capitalism. Indeed, as we move through the 21st century, the compulsion of capitalism to accumulate is fast reaching a point where it imperils the very existence of the planet. The point is simply that the primary significance of 1917 for the history of the 20th century no longer seems to lie in its challenge to capitalism so much as in the contribution to the defeat of fascism and later of posing a threat, both real and imagined, to the geopolitical primacy of the USA in the Cold War. Still, in the future, the ambition of its challenge to capitalism may once again inspire. For contemporaries, the significance of 1917 lay in the promise to put the working class into power and to put an end to inequality and exploitation. A century on, that does not appear to be its lasting significance. What stand out as being of greater significance are elements of the social revolution that the Bolsheviks would have considered secondary to proletarian emancipation. Commitments to such causes as anti-colonialism, women's rights, experiments in law, welfare and education, or new concepts of urban planning and architecture. The Bolsheviks cannot claim exclusive credit for putting the struggle against colonialism on the political agenda of the 20th century. There had been a rising tide of humanitarian critique of colonial abuses, and the Social Democrats in Germany had spoken out against German policy in Southwest Africa back in 1906. Moreover, in the year that the first Congress of the Comintern convened, 1919, the Pan-African Congress also met for the first time to articulate a liberal as opposed to a socialist critique of colonial abuses and to call for home rule for African peoples but it was the Comintern that popularized militant anti-imperialism and served as a training ground for many who would become leaders of national liberation struggles in the post-war era. Where else but in a Comintern Congress in 1924 could the young Ho Chi Minh denounce the brutal treatment of African labor? Similarly, without minimizing the imperial dimension of the Soviet Union, the Bolshevik program of nation-building, with its commitment to affirmative action and empowerment programs for ethnic minorities, looks forward to much that took place in the West only from the 1960s. 
Likewise, judged against the standards of the time, many of the policies of the women's department aimed at the liberation of women from patriarchy also anticipate the demands of the women's movement in the West from the late 1960s. The Russian Revolution of 1917 ended in tyranny, yet it raised fundamental questions about how justice, equality, and freedom can be reconciled which have not gone away. Its answers were flawed, but it opened up certain progressive possibilities that the dismal record of Stalinism and Maoism should not blind us to. In a world that is saturated by the mass media, it becomes ever harder to think rigorously and critically about the principles on which our society is organized and about the direction in which humanity is going. Everything conspires to make us acquiesce in the world as it is, to discourage belief that it can be organized in a more just and rational fashion. Yet that is what the Bolsheviks tried to do. Their revolution wrought calamity on a scale commensurate with the transformation in the human condition that they sought to achieve. And a hundred years on, it is easier to appreciate the illusions under which they laboured than the ideals that inspired them. Yet we shall not understand the Russian Revolution unless we see that for all their many faults, the Bolsheviks were fired by outrage at the exploitation that lay at the heart of capitalism and at the raging nationalism that had led Europe into the carnage of the First World War. Nor will we understand the year 1917 if we do not make an imaginative effort to recapture the hope, idealism, heroism, anger, fear, and despair that motivated it the burning desire for peace, the deep resentment of a social order riven between the haves and the have-nots, anger at the injustices that ran through Russian society. That is why millions across the world who could not anticipate the horrors to come embraced the 1917 revolution as a chance to create a new world of justice, equality, and freedom. And that ends the book, our longest series to date. Um, there was, it, there is actually a little bit more to talk about in this conclusion than I was anticipating, because one thing I find very funny in how this book is ended and this conclusion is there's a lot of gesturing forward to the tyranny of Stalin, as the author keeps referring to, that is not in this book. Again, perhaps me being underread in history is a bit of a handicap here because the author seems to presuppose that you understand what the tyranny that's about to happen is, and I personally do not. And part of why I wanted to read this book was to better understand the history of Russia and where things were and where they, where things originated and where they went. And this book has been useful in understanding the period of the revolution itself, from where it began, where it originated, how it went under Lenin, and how it went after Lenin's death, up to a point. And up to a point where it still, to me, seems like there are actions and acts of the Bolshevik government I could criticize, they don't always line up with the author of this book, but it didn't quite get to a point where I would 
be comfortable simplifying it as tyranny, and obviously there is a lot more history after this point. And in some ways it feels strange that this book is gesturing ahead to an assumed history, when a lot of the book that is here is taking a look at the events and based on what he has said based on what the author said of other historians talking about this period is avoiding some traps of assumptions about the idea that the revolution was a highly ideological and insensible act that it was rooted in material conditions that improved material conditions in certain ways even if it struggled against material problems that existed regardless of the ideology. And as a Smith seems to have more objections to the actions that were taken than I necessarily would. I again think about how funny it is to me that S.A. Smith seems to think that propaganda is inherently immoral, that the state trying to instill specific ideas in people is inherently immoral, whereas as much as I think the authoritarian bent of the Bolshevik government is probably a big element of why it was not... is a big element of why it would lead to problems and why even in this section there were problems with that government... I don't think I would object to propaganda flatly. I would object to propaganda that spreads ideas that I disagree with. Uh, to maybe put this in a more straightforward way, it is propaganda to tell people that they should, for instance, wear face masks to prevent the spread of infection in society. That is propaganda. Propaganda, that is, spreading information with the aim of getting people to adopt a specific belief and hold to it. It would be ludicrous to say that that is an evil or that that is some distasteful, just because it is specifically instilling exact ideas in the minds of people. The part where S.A. Smith presumably is objecting is because it's an idea of instilling specific ideological ideas. One could make the argument that putting on a mask is not particularly ideological, it is merely scientific, but there's plenty of cases of people trying to claim that this is in fact highly ideological and objecting to it and suggesting that it goes too far. So I think there is a lot less of a clear dividing line than S.A. Smith might suggest in this instance. And as someone who thinks that moving towards a more communist society, a more socialist society, would be good moves, I would not object at all to a government putting out information that indicates as much, even if it clearly serves the government's interests in that it is telling you as a citizen to align with the government's interests. I simply don't think that that is a bad thing. In a similar way, I think having a one-party government obviously leans into authoritarian tendencies that cause problems, especially as you start to shut out who is considered outside of the party or not, and you start to create a situation in which everyone has to lean into the leader's idea of how things work, um, which again, presumably, would come up as more of an issue if I learned the further decades of history that are to come after this revolution. But I am not inherently opposed to the idea of shutting out other parties of government in, 
in the sense that, for instance, I think removing right-wing parties from government would be a net good for the government of my country, for instance. Now, whether or not that would lead to other problems is obviously a concern. That is obviously a much more complicated proposition, especially because of the way in which it then leads to the question of what does that party do when it has no opposition? And also, as much as I think that would, say, be a step forward, I also think there should be diverse opinions on what building communism or socialism looks like. And you don't get that if you insist upon a singular vision of how that works. One thing that was particularly interesting in hearing this history was how clearly besieged the Bolsheviks were. Because, again, a funny thing in the book where I don't think this was as harsh a criticism. I think this was a softer criticism that the author made. The book would sometimes intonate as if the Bolsheviks were being paranoid in trying to excise opposition. And in the next paragraph, we talk about how other countries were intentionally trying to undermine the Russian Revolution uh, because they didn't like the idea that it could spread. So while justified might be a loaded word to use, it was not irrational of them to feel like they needed to guard against people undermining their society. The difficulty in being able to determine exactly who was a quote-unquote valid target of that is obviously complicated. I said before that one of the things in this book that is kind of strange to think about is the author sometimes talks as if this perfect information that we have after the fact should have been obvious in retrospect, but obviously there is no way in which the Bolsheviks could have been certain of any of their conclusions in this situation. They were taking guesses at what things were, and they were doing their best to understand the situation. Or they were, att they were attempting to understand the situation and make as good a choices as they could manage. So it is unrealistic to expect that they would have never made mistakes about who to trust or distrust. Ultimately, I think it was valuable to learn a lot about these material conditions. I now would like to continue to learn about the decades that came after this. I do not think I will be reading a book about that on this podcast. This one in particular ran so long and technically didn't even, per se, cover all the ground I would have liked. Uh, though for the record, my I am not suggesting that the book should have been even longer and kept going. More the fact that it keeps gesturing to years of history it hasn't covered is a bit funny to me. In my own personal reading, I intend to keep going so I have a better understanding of this stuff. And I would also like to learn more about the history of Chinese communism, how that arose and developed too. But I will try and do that in the background and it may inform some discussions here and there. If you have suggestions about readings about that that I should check out, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Feel free to send any kind of suggestions, recommendations, corrections, or omissions there. I've even had people recommend just fiction books, which has been fun. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to support the network and get lots of bonus podcasts too. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. 
You can go to soundimage.org to find lots of his work there. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.